episode 207, Disrupt or Be Disrupted. Today I speak with A.G. Breitenstein, partner at Optum Ventures. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. Optum, as we all know, is a sprawling behemoth with business units providing everything from pharmacy benefit management to actually providing primary care. Optum Ventures is Optum's innovation center, as well as its strategic hedge, you know, just in case the PBM business takes a turn. Today, I speak with A.G. Breitenstein, who is a partner over at Optum Ventures. She talks about what she looks for in healthcare businesses poised for success. She considers how they intersect with people to start. Entrepreneurs that AG is most interested in run businesses with a coherent story featuring real people, IRL, in real life. She says people move markets, even markets as big as the one Optum currently occupies and usually completely dominates. I found it very interesting to hear how Optum views the universe, at least the side of Optum concerned with potential future disruption. My name is Stacey Richter, and this podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Welcome to Relentless Health Value, AG. Hey, Stacey, how are you? So let's just kick it off here talking about innovation centers, specifically innovation centers like you have at Optum. And there are others at other PBMs or insurance carriers that are being built or have been around for a while, as in the case of yours. Let's just state the obvious. Innovation is disruptive. So what's the intent or the hope or the expectation of these large organizations with really solidly vested interest in maintaining the status quo? What are they doing helping innovators be disruptive? I think in any circumstance, it's sort of a disruptor, be disrupted scenario. I think large companies, ours definitely included, has, you know, become self-aware to the challenge of doing innovation in the context of a, as you said, a large vested interest. And so the necessity to disrupt oneself, I think, has certainly become a conscious goal for Optum and for others. And so that is a challenge, but one which I think Optum's taken on uh, very aggressively. And really, it's about embracing the problems of the healthcare system as, as really being the focus and the solutions evolve over time. And so innovation and ventures as a necessary disruptor to the status quo solutions while still focusing on the problem, I think, is the way that we th- think about it at an organizational level, at least. And do they put guardrails on this? They're like, okay, don't come up with stuff, but keep a lid on it for five years. Not really. And again, I think it's because the end of the day, and and Optum in particular, but we work with all the major payers. We work with most of the major providers, we have a large constituency of patients who that we care for ourselves. And the problem of healthcare is very broad and very deep. And so holding on to an established legacy technology base doesn't ultimately serve anyone. So there really aren't guardrails except insofar as we stay within the mission of making healthcare better, faster, cheaper, more equitable, more affordable. So at Optum Ventures, is it an accelerator or how is it different? 
we don't think of ourselves as accelerator at all. We actually think of ourselves as a strategic venture firm. And by that, we mean we are actually structured as a separate LLC with sort of the classic venture economics, which aligns us very directly with the entrepreneurs, but at the same time with all of the relationships and understanding and interaction with Optum and United as the mothership to both identify the places in the market where there's real opportunity for disruption on the one hand, and then second, to give our companies really unprecedented access to plug into that chassis as the biggest and most tentacular in in healthcare. And so that's both an advantage for the entrepreneur, but then ultimately an advantage for United and Optum in terms of having access to that innovation through Optum Ventures Investments. I'm going to pick apart both of the elements that you just said, number one and number two. And I'm going to start with number two. The entrepreneurs that you choose to work with have unprecedented access to plug in, as you say, to the chassis. What do you mean by that? I think if you look at our portfolio and you look at Bowie Health or Let's Get Checked or Rubicon or really any of the companies We've essentially taken what they do and identified the places within Optum that they scale. So if you take Rubicon as an example, e-consults for specialty care. So we have a a very broad PCP platform with Optum Care that comprises about 50,000 physicians around the country mostly in Medicare Advantage. Now, the ability to take Rubicon and connect those PCPs to specialty e-consults, right, is a win for everybody. It's a win for the patient because they don't have to spend time and money seeking specialty consults by traveling across the country or what have you. The primary cares in our network get better access to higher level services, and the payer ultimately saves by virtue of sort of, again, saving that that expensive downstream consult. So that's a place where we took a small company, plugged it into a much larger chassis and are able to then scale the vision across the country. In that respect, it's almost like you are the customer in a way. It kind of combines the pilot and the customer into one package. It does. And that's sort of where it fits into the existing chassis. I would say that Bowie, as an example, is a way of doing things entirely differently. So Bowie Health is an AI chatbot that engages patients when they are doing the classic consulting Dr. Google about their symptoms. So we have a whole established sort of engagement infrastructure of trying to get patients to the right place at the right time. But the fact of the matter is, is that getting people to use those tools is a pull exercise, right? It's getting, pulling them into portals. It's pulling them into advocacy platforms or what have you. Bowie is actually going to the patient at the point at which they are starting their journey, which is almost inevitably 73% of Americans Googling their symptoms. So the ability to intercept them there and essentially pull them into the engagement far earlier and really at the place where they are making that very first decision is a different paradigm from kind of the chassis of the existing insurance carrier consumer relationship, if that makes sense. And you can use the scale of Optum. I mean, obviously, it would be really tough for a startup to integrate with the interwebs. (laughs) 
exactly. <laughs> at that level. Exactly. And you sort of hit on it, right? It's how do we use our scale and how do we use our integration to all of the various dark underbellies of piping in the system to give these companies a lever up and then also give ourselves the advantage of, of that kind of innovation. Back to thing one, the identification of opportunities that you focus on. I know one thing that you said, which I just the visual here is I, I just love it. It's so evocative. You said that one of your focuses is and one of the opportunities is finding areas of stored kinetic energy. Is that how you find opportunities? Yeah. So for us, yes. And I think the idea is at the end of the day, patients drive the dollars around the system, right? Everybody focuses on the payers and the providers and the employers. And the, but really, the patient kind of drags this whole system behind them as they start to initiate contact, make choices, and then proceed downstream. And so that consumer today, if you imagine them moving through that system, is pretty much walking around blindly, has a whole bunch of pieces of Velcro stuck to them to keep them from moving through that that system seamlessly, has very little ability to understand the information that's surrounding them and causing the decisions to be made around them. And that experience today is sort of how we feel, right? As we, if you are injured or you become sick, even I, I was talking to somebody today about, you know, if you, you have to get knee surgery and I've been through that, you still at, at the level that, you know, you and I and most of the people listening to this are at, we still don't know the first step, right? <laughs> we still actually, if we step back and thought about it, are like, oh, I wouldn't actually know where to call or where to go. If you think about that relative to everything else in our experience on a day-to-day, which is becoming so attuned to us. I mean, I walk to my car and it senses my phone and opens the door for me now. That seamlessness of experience is generalizing across all of the rest of the economic landscape that we walk through every day. And my phone, you know, my computer tells me all the information I need to make choices that were very complex. If I want to get a a solar panel put on my house, I know all of the information about how much it's going to cost and who's good and who's bad and how do the systems work and what are the choices and how do I get credits on my utility bill? None of that is apparent in healthcare. So that dissonance of experience to me causes more and more pressure of people looking at the system and saying, what the heck? Why does this not work the way it is working in every other domain? which then causes expectation. And if you can meet that expectation, now you can start to move those bodies in a different direction. And again, that movement of the system drags a whole host of dollars and implications with it if you can get those patients to move en masse. And do you see that actually happening? Do you see patients, not consumers, you know, patients moving en masse? I do. So I think if you are paying attention, and some of this is a phenomenon of a very sort of stiff market for employees, but if you look at the number of services that employers are currently taking on outside of their contracts with payers and trying to get their patients to avail themselves, whether it's behavioral care or it's musculoskeletal care or it's 
virtual care, whatever, all of those offerings that employers are trying to organize are all about directing patient choice. They're all about getting patients to make different, better other choices than they're making today with the current classic system, if you will. That all ties into this notion of how do we understand a patient's movement through a system? And really, it's a reaction to the fact that the classic system doesn't work particularly well. And it's interesting because I have discussions with employers all the time and I always talk to them about how much more proximate they are to the patient. And they all kind of look at me funny and I'm like, you, the employer, see them every day. They come in and out of your office building or interact with you and get your pay- their paycheck from you. Most people don't interact with their insurance company until it's well into some the etiology of some um, illness or some event. So that is all about that direct relationship and that that relationship's ability to to sort of guide the choice that the patient makes. You've said that there's nothing more exciting to you than a blank piece of paper and a big problem to solve. What's the first thing that you write down on that piece of paper these days? Where are you sort of starting? I think we all start with ourselves at some level, but I try, and and this again is at least just my professional genesis, I actually try to picture a mom who's probably working two jobs at least, who's got a couple of kids and a spouse of some sort. She's making all, all or most of the decisions if they have health insurance and they may not, and it, it, it may be eligible for Medicaid, maybe not, but there is a whole host of decisions which expose her and her family to up to you know $2,000 or even more of cost before they even get near the health insurance system at best. And then I think about a giant monolithic building filled with clinical services that she is ill-equipped to understand and even a person with a PhD would be ill-equipped to understand and maybe has highly variable transportation and certainly doesn't have any hours of the day to take care of herself and, and barely enough to take care of her kids. So to me, it's about a story of a person and what their circumstances are like. And then I try to think about the investments and, and the way that we think about the system relative to her every day. And take telehealth, for example, somebody was talking to me about why telehealth hasn't thrived. And I'm like, most people don't you know, have the ability to take an hour out of their day and find a private place in their office to have a telehealth visit. Like it just actually doesn't make any sense. And if you have that time and that space, you probably are just going to go for a regular visit. So that that whole paradigm to me didn't fit the model of the human being who's working hourly, can't take a, you know, has a 15 minute break, maybe is going from one job to the next. And every day that they take off or half day that they take off is not just the cost of the visit, but also the cost of a half a day's wage. And so when people are sort of like, oh, why didn't this or that succeed? I'm kind of like, think about that person's daily life. And it becomes manifestly obvious. So that's, at least for me, where I start. And then everything layers up on top of that. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that. Many times when people think about user experience, they think about user experience in the context of the person already arrived <laughs> you yeah. know, like at the site or at the website, where the real question is, will they ever get there in the first place? Like, does it make any sense for them to be there at all? Totally. And I think that's where the healthcare system falls down to begin with, is that it's all about changing behaviors. It's all about changing patterns of 
of movement. It's all about changing patterns of eating and, and consumption. And the fact of the matter is, is it's exactly the wrong way to start the conversation. You actually have to go where the patients are. You have to try to engage them on, on a downhill roll of what their normal day is, as opposed to changing that trajectory and trying to push them back up a hill. So, you know, as I said, I alluded to Bowie before. The reason that we found that so compelling is because they're going to the where the patients are, which is on Google. People start Googling their symptoms very early in the arc of symptomology. And they access care somewhere and it's about hour 72. So you're getting them much earlier. You're getting them at the place that decisions are making and you're going to where they're going naturally as opposed to trying to divert their behavior into something else. Is there something, A.G., that you believe that nobody else agrees with you? Oh, Jesus. <laughs> or maybe limited to the top five. <laughs> I mean, and all of these things are heretical, right? Uh, I, I am a public health professional. I'm not a physician clinician. And so I very much believe that the view of physicians at the center of the system, and I have great respect for them, in some ways has been one of the more detrimental sort of facets of the way the healthcare system is structured, right? That the whole EMR, the whole sort of ambulatory care environment, the whole hospital environment, if it is any one thing, it is physician-centric. And I know physicians' lives like are not pleasant, and they certainly didn't make it a nice experience, but it is still a physician-centric experience. And the fact of the matter is, and we know this empirically, most of people's health in their lives is determined by experiences and exposures and behaviors, all of which occur outside of the ambit of a physician or a health system. So the fact that the system is focused around the clinicians and the actual determination of health outcomes is very outside of that environment, to me, is the fundamental breakdown. So that's that's like List number one, the whole, the way in which the healthcare system is sort of organized. The other big thing is that we just assume that patients can't make choices in healthcare. And I actually think that that is increasingly a broken model, that we can only pay for things that doctors and clinical professionals say is, quote, healthcare. When again, if you think about a lot of the determinants of health being housing and food and social support and things that are decidedly not clinical, that if we just pay for, quote, medicine, we've already missed the boat. So those are just two on a very long list. <laughs> yeah. And just speaking of the second one, relative to millennial women, at least there's a lot of data coming out, which suggests that they're abandoning the healthcare system for exactly these reasons. You know, like if you can't get what you feel you need, then you know, exactly like you said, consumers can make choices and they're making choices to not switch healthcare systems. They're making choices to abandon it. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I am myself guilty of avoiding a lot of the healthcare system in general and treating things with acupuncture and herbs and all of the stuff that I think a lot of people are doing because they're feeling like, wow, this system isn't aligned with me. I mean, not only is it confusing and, and expensive and, and a pain in the ass, pardon me, um, but it's also, it's just not aligned ultimately with my interest in my own health. And, and that's also a major problem is that we don't have fundamental trust in the incentives that drive 98% of the health system. Are these things something that affect you on, on a day-to-day -day basis? Like you constantly find yourself having to convince people of these underlying 
facts maybe that they don't want to see themselves because they have vested interest in not seeing them. Yeah. And I think it's like the frog in the boiling water, right? We all find ourselves like slowly the heat gets turned up and turned up and turned up. And, and, and really, I think people's sense of like, whoa, this is such a complicated system. It's such a big system. It's such an entrenched system. How do we imagine ourselves changing it? And this to me, again, gets back to your first question, which is, boy, do we have a responsibility to fight against that inertia? And we have a responsibility, particularly as as Optum, and something that is connected to all those disparate parts to be disruptive for our own sakes and for our family's sakes, as much as for the sakes of, of everybody else who, at the end of the day, we will all be patients at some point. So I take that very seriously. I think people say things like that, but we really have to shake the trees because the system is broken at a fundamental structural level that does, I go back to that woman who's got two jobs and, and two kids and doesn't have a PhD. It is a skyscraper of immense proportion to think of the challenge of, of her really being able to get that system to work on her behalf every day. And this brokenness, as you put it, is this something that your typical insurance carrier or provider, are these things that they really need to be worried about right now because of the short term? Or are these things that are going to circle around and smack somebody in the back of the head 20 years from now? I think it's both. And I think they're fully cognizant of it. I think as you start to contemplate, what is it about health insurance that typically made it a part of the standard bundle of things that an employer would offer to a person? increasingly, you know, not only is, is the system of sort of employer-based health insurance shaking, quaking a little bit, but the way in which we understand its net benefit is, I think, it is incumbent on us to really prove its fundamental value. So, I don't know if I'm answering your question particularly well, but I think as we think about the insistent cost implications of 5, 10, 15, 20% increases year over year and the increasing spread of the self-pay component and the reduced ability to prove outcomes, people are scratching their heads more and more. And that's a fact that's not particular to insurance carriers. That's a fact of the entire system. I do think that as patients are starting to, as you said, avail themselves of other modalities of care, the question of one, two, three hundred, four hundred, five hundred thousand dollars of cost per month out of their paycheck, they're kind of like, really, what am I getting? Right? It was always just taken on faith, and that question is a is a significant one, and it's an important one. Yeah, for sure. Especially because if you get an individual who is not using the healthcare system, then there's a trickle down effect. You know, they're thinking to themselves, why do we need insurance then? <laughs> you know, like we're all thinking about these risk pools and evening out the risk pools, for example. And if you don't have the young, healthy people in those risk pools, then the whole system starts to get cracks in it. That's exactly right. And that, that is where the question is being asked, right? And, and when we think about the engagement of those individuals on an everyday basis, and what's interesting, it, it ties back to your question of this kinetic energy. Nowhere is that kinetic stretch felt more acutely than in this generation that's grown up with just unbelievable access to very 
easy ways of engaging at every aspect of the economic system. And for them in particular, they look at this and they go, what? What is that? And how is it possibly working on my behalf? Because I don't get it. So that, I think, puts those people even at, at further distance from the system. And to your point, makes it hard then to sustain the, the risk mix that you need to make insurance work. And is there something that you are particularly looking for right now? You know, like, what are you seeking at this time? Is there a priority list, a short list? Yeah, I mean, it's a long structural dynamic. But but what we're looking for is we think that the healthcare delivery system itself is going to be massively transformed in the next 10 years. You're going to see a lot more focused delivery platforms around certain types of illnesses, you know, major chronic illness, MSK or musculoskeletal illness, that, that sort of thing. So you're going to see a lot more of very tailored delivery systems around large, complex, expensive conditions. You're going to see a very new primary care system, which is sort of highly scalable and technologically enabled and and probably largely virtual. I think you're going to see AI across a whole bunch of just what we refer to as sort of stupid crap in healthcare, um, automated, automatable tasks that people with master's degrees and doctoral degrees are doing like, you know, repetitive robot and, and just should not be doing. I think the EMR is going to be fundamentally transformed. I think data is going to become the essential cog in every wheel. I think the consumer is going to become an increasingly dominant player in the way in which care is accessed and and disseminated. I think payment's going to change vastly. I think the traditional modes of slowing the flow of money through pre-authorization systems and and claims and, and all sorts of things, those modalities are going to get upended. And I think risk is going to be a completely transformed industry, especially with all the data that we're seeing sort of step to the fore. And, and uh, you know, people ask if, if healthcare is, is really going to radically transform. And to me, 15 years ago, the internet became an essential piece of people's lives because data became prolific about everything from people's choices to people's preferences to their wallet to their credit card, all those, that stuff. That's sort of what ignited the internet as being the linchpin. And that kind of data richness is just starting in healthcare. So all of the transformation we've seen enabled by the internet in across every other industry, I think is hasn't even really fully begun in healthcare. That's an exciting moment to think about how we could transform healthcare because you, know, you boil it all down. All of the broken stuff in healthcare ultimately derives from asymmetries of information, lack of information, lack of transparency. So that kind of transformational data capacity and availability coupled with, as we said, the, the experience, the dissonant experience of the consumer, I think is a really interesting energetic equation. So, A.G., is there a question that you don't get asked a whole lot that you wish people would ask you? Because I'd like to ask you that question. You know, everything to me derives back from like, what is the essential thing that you look for in somebody that you really hope is going to disrupt industries? And so what I would love people to ask me is like, what is that bright light in somebody's eye that you're looking for when they come in the door? Because that to me is how do you see that somebody is going to make a massive difference? And you don't really, again, you don't know it until you see it. But when you see a person who walks into your office who, you know, and I've been in healthcare for too long, 25, 26 years, 
but who gets you really excited at the possibility of change in the face of this monstrous entity that we deal with every day and reignites your sense of kind of hope. That is the most special experience because it reanimates you relative to the possibilities and and the impact that we can have on people's lives. So how do you find those people? How do you get to work with them every day? That to me is the essential and important question in healthcare. And then there's a lot of them. There's just, there's so many and it's so invigorating to get to to spend every day with them. So I don't know if I answered your question, but (laughs) that to me, it's like, just come in and inspire us like just come in and and have a crazy idea because the fact of the matter is today's system is totally crazy and having a crazy idea to fix it is is not crazier than 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 the crazy brokenness that we deal with every day so no ideas is too big in that sense yeah well when you're dealing with crazy sane usually doesn't work so yeah no exactly takes one to know one right (laughs) Completely, completely. (laughs) I thank you so much for being on the podcast today, AG. Oh, it was so much fun, Stacey. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.